I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The Chicago Reader at 50. The alternative weekly newspaper started small, but over the decades, the paper has had a massive impact with its coverage of news and culture in our area. So joining us now to discuss the paper's history, legacy, and hopefully next 50 years is Tracy Bame, co-publisher and president of the Chicago Reader. Hi, Tracy. Welcome back to Reset. Hi, thanks for having me on. Also with us is Paul DeRica, director of exhibitions at the Newberry Library, which is commemorating the 50th anniversary. Paul, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. And we want to hear from you, too. Tell us, what has your experience been with the Chicago Reader? Tracy, can you take us back to the very beginning? How did the Chicago Reader get started? It was uh, started by several people, mainly four college friends from Carleton College back in 1971. The first issue was October 1st. Mark Jacob, a freelance writer in Chicago, wrote an incredible multi-thousand word uh, story for for us about that origin story. And many of us who've only been at the Reader for the last few years or even decade learned a whole lot about those early years of how a ragtag it was, how they were working out of apartments in Hyde Park and and really um, just building a business empire uh, from scratch. And it certainly was based on other alternative media around the country, like the Village Voice. But what really makes it stand out is it's the longest standing free publication, uh, free weekly publication in the country. A lot of those other publications were paid and it stood out as a free publication. What was the early reader crew like? Well, I I would have to say it's majority white um, and um, a lot of Chicagoans, but a lot of people that moved here um, from other places in the Midwest and around the country. Um, like I said, they were working out of their uh, home uh, apartments, and it was eight pages, sometimes 16 pages. Mm-hmm. It really blossomed in the 1980s as the advertising took off, especially classified advertising. They were often joked about as being a doorstop. It was so thick sometimes, you know, well over 100 pages, four sections. Um, and it, it, I think its peak years really were those 80s and 90s where it was pre-internet, And the reader was the one-stop place to go every week. Um, You know, the stacks were piled up at bookstores and other locations, and people couldn't wait to get a handle on it because it was the place you could find any music listing, theater listing, etc. It was the Internet of its day. Paul, the exhibition at Newberry Library describes the paper's legacy as revolutionary. In what ways? Well, I think, you know, the reader met uh, probably at that point a kind of uh, unknown need within the city. So when the Reader started 50 years ago in in 71, um, Chicago had multiple newspapers, the Tribune, um, Sun-Times, even the Daily News. Uh, But what the Reader was doing that was different is it was focusing on the stories that a lot of those other papers weren't covering and then covering them in depth. And and very early on in the publication's history, the Reader established itself as a home for long-form journalism. And, you know, this would become significant over the years when it would be a publication like the Chicago Reader that really helped to kind of break the John Burge story, the sort of police torture scandal, uh, starting with the reporting done by John Conroy in the early early 1990s. So you have that long-form journalism, which on the one hand you're not finding in other publications at the time, which is telling stories that aren't being told elsewhere. Uh, But you also, you know, have the Reader as a place where, like, you can also read, like, cutting-edge underground comics, so, like, works by people like Linda Berry or Matt Groening, who over the years have gained a national reputation. So it was, you know, a unique reading experience mm-hmm. within the city. Tell us more about how the reader shaped the news landscape here in Chicago. 
you know, well, Tracy, do you want to respond to that? Well, it was a training ground for some really incredible local and national journalists. And as Paul mentioned, the cartoonists as well. Um, it, it was edgier. Um, it, it was an early adopter of the idea that there isn't this objective line in journalism. Oftentimes it might have crossed lines that other publications didn't, but it was in the service of the truth. Um, and those in-depth stories, they might have been profound, like with House of Screens, which we have an article on in this week's um, anniversary issue uh, about John Conroy's uh, persistence on that story for decades. Or it could have been, you know, a 20,000 word story about beekeeping, right? Like it was it was a deep dive on issues you didn't even know you cared about. <laughs> and it allowed journalists to just go off in so many different ways creatively that they couldn't in other kind of stifling situations. So sometimes that might seem a little loose form, like the freelancers often guided the, the content, but it also allowed for a great training ground for generations of journalists. And a reminder, we want to hear from you, too. Tell us, what has your experience been with the Chicago Reader? You can share your story by giving us a call right now at 866-915-WBEZ. That is 866-915-WBEZ. Let's hear from Linda, who's calling from Grays Lake. Hi, Linda. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. You know, for me, having just moved back in 1981 from the Bay Area, and living in my parents' basement, it was really just kind of a cultural oasis. And uh, just I really feel the investigative reporting, um, it just made an enormous difference. And then personally, uh, I met uh, through the roommate section, I met my long-term friend and children, of uh, dad of my children, uh, through a roommate ad, and um, you know, over time the relationship developed, and we have two beautiful children in their thirties. And yay! Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I was I was just learning from engineer Dave about the different classified ads. So it's it's funny that you mention the the roommate ad there, Linda. That's that's very cool. Thank you for sharing that story with us. What do you love most about the Chicago Reader, Tracy? Oh, man, I love that it is by Chicago for Chicago. I am a Chicagoan, born and raised, and uh, many of our staff are, but even those who come from other places really adopt that. Um, I I love its history. I love its rich history. Karen Hawkins, the co-publisher, and I, we want to make sure we honor the history, but also acknowledge that it was, um, it also reflected a lot of journalism of its era, meaning it was predominantly produced by white people parachuting into stories that were done phenomenally. But a lot of what we've tried to do the last few years is shift who is producing the news as well um, to make it more reflective of Chicago um, and diversifying our staff and our freelancers. So I love its history, but I also want to make sure we acknowledge that everybody has room for improvement, including the Chicago Reader. Yeah. Well, our caller, Yuli, might not be there anymore, but I do know Yuli had a similar story to Linda. Uh, and, and we're noticing a trend, Tracy. So I've got to ask, but was the reader kind of like eHarmony or Match? Oh, my God. <laughs> It was not only like eHarmony and Grinder and uh, Twitter, um, but it, it really, I cannot tell you how many people have told me they've met their partners, spouses, husbands, as the other caller said, they're, they're, uh, the p- partners of their, their parents of their children. Um, we have hundreds and hundreds of stories like that. We hope to have an event in February that'll reunite people. Um, not only that, but they found their apartments, their futons, their jobs. Uh, my brother found his first job out of college um, in a reader ad. I, yeah. It's just in an unbelievable. It really was everything in terms of connecting people who had something to sell or something to do. 
Hey, Paul, what about you? What do you love most about the reader? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> was, you had to know I was coming to you next. I know, I know. Um, well, you know, I moved to Chicago in 2005, and at that point, you know, the reader was four sections, and it really was my sort of um, entry point into kind of learning about the city and, like, the cultural life of the city. And because of that, like, I learned about great music venues and, and theaters. Um, and then also, I both, I'll admit, I've always loved the comics. They're great. I mentioned Linda Berry's work. But, you know, there's also a long-running comic called The Secret History of Chicago Music, produced by this guy, Plastic Crime Wave, that you just you don't find that kind of material elsewhere yeah. in the city. And so I've always kind of valued it as a resource. I've loved Ben Jarafsky's political reporting. I learned so much about how the city works. You don't kind of see that sort of local political reporting in a lot of other places in, in print. I mean, it's just such an invaluable resource, and this continued to be for kind of getting to know the city better, getting to know different neighborhoods better. And I've always valued that. And to respond to that first caller, I mean, one thing that you find in the Reader Archive is that the Chicago Reader has always had a very passionate readers, people who really want to engage with it. And so we have boxes and boxes of letters to the editor. And they're really fascinating because they're coming from all corners of the city, all different kind of backgrounds and, and people's beliefs, and really trying to kind of engage the publication. And that's some of the material that you'll see in the exhibition. Yeah, the uh, or WBEZ news anchor Lisa Labas says the first page I would turn to every week was the reader's early warnings page on which uh, bands were coming to town to play gigs. So that's pretty cool. Uh, let's hear from Nick, who's calling from Galewood. Hi, Nick. Welcome to Reset. What are your memories from uh, the Chicago Reader? So just to touch on, on the bands real quick, we would you know bring us to these little clubs, early 90s, like the Lounge Acts. And bands like Uncle Tupelo, Mr. Blotto, that was our that was our weekly thing. Could have run over to the stores in Bucktown, get it, and we plan our weekends. Nice. We ran a little article. Um, I don't know. It had to be 30 years ago, either 89 or 91 or something like this, about beach towns within a couple hours of Chicago. And they had a place called the Firefly Inn in Union Pier. And my wife, who was dating at the time, we went and checked it out, and we've been going there for 30 years now. Oh, that's awesome. This little beach community. Yeah, it's the first thing that came to mind when you guys started talking. Oh, that's incredible, Nick. I I appreciate you calling and sharing that with us. Let's hear now from Ian, who's in South Bend, Indiana. Hi, Ian. Welcome to Reset. Hi, how are you? Doing well. What are your memories? Well, you know, I currently uh, live in South Bend right now, but I've lived all over the city of Chicago, um, and I just remember... Uh, in the 90s, waiting every week for the Thursday publication to come out. Um, it was really through the reader that I was introduced to um, with the film articles of Jonathan Rosenbaum. Um, I learned about Dan Savage and Savage Love, so that was really amazing. Um, and someone had actually just mentioned the comics, and, you know, I'm an artist, um, visual artist, and so um, that was a really important thing for me um, as well. Um, I was introduced to Ivan Brunetti and Matt Gradig. Um, so I've lived in other places and I've tried to find similar free weeklies, you know, like the Riverfront Times and uh, St. Louis, but none of them have been um, sort of the same thing as what I remember from the reader back in the 90s. Thanks for calling, Ian. Um, Tracy, we've heard that theater scholars reference the paper all the time for its documentation of theater in Chicago. What archival value does the paper hold? Oh, wow. Tremendous. I'm so glad the Newbury Library is doing this current exhibit. There's just so much more. We have the whole set of archives at our offices, and we've been slowly scanning the 1970s. To me, every part of it is archival, meaning even the advertising, the the comics, the personal ads. 
when I joked about it being the Twitter of its day, I kind of mean it. It was like Twitter on a 10-day delay. People, there were constant users of it that would send messages to one another through the personals uh, and other ads in the pages. So that is like priceless. It also shows the, you know, it reflects very much the city of Chicago um, on gender and race and all sorts of things in mm-hmm. the articles, the personals, the advertising. So to me, we want to eventually get everything digitized. A whole lot of our archives are on our website at chicagoreader.com, but there's so much more we want to get on there, including just the full issues of the paper, because they are so really important to Chicago's history, just like the sometimes in the Tribune and BEZ are. We want to make sure that that community press is also making sure that it's archived. Well, the reader prides itself on staying, quote, free and freaky since 1971. Why is that important, Tracy, an important part of the paper's ethos? Well, you know, we print 60,000 copies now every other week. We're biweekly now. And those copies run out in a day or two in most of our locations. It's actually one of my biggest frustrations is we can't keep them stocked. It's still the same old problem. People, I feel like it's an access point. Like, not everybody has smartphones so our website is, is free and available on any kind of phone. Not everybody wants to get their uh, their news through technology. So having a free print newspaper, to me, it reaches the masses in a much better way. Not that we shouldn't you know, value media. Um, our future as a nonprofit, which we're, we're confer- converting to now, means that we need to rely on all sorts of t- types of revenue to survive. But we want to remain free because it is it is such a, it's such an easy way for people then to find the news and not have a barrier to, to reading about our communities. So we, we want to stay free as long as possible. That's our plan in the future. Let's jump back to the phones. Here is Tom in Mokina. Hi, Tom. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Um, yeah, when I was uh, in uh, business school, uh, you know, a young married couple, my wife and I, uh, I pick up the reader uh, when I was going to school at night in Chicago you know, for, like people said, for the music, but uh, we were uh, thinking of adopting at that time, and uh, open adoption wasn't that common. And there was one of those long-form stories um, about an agency called the Adoption Connection. And, uh, you know, we looked them up and uh, used them to uh, help us adopt uh, our our son and daughter. Wow. And, uh, wow. That's so, incredible. So there were probably other people, too. Oh, I'm sure. Tom, that's awesome. Wow, that that's life-changing. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Paul, can you tell us more about what's in the exhibition? What's on display? Yes. So um, Newberry is very fortunate to have the Chicago Reader Archive, which is a mix of you know business documents, but also photographs, um, original manuscripts of stories, a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes material. And that's partially what visitors are going to see there. So when you come to the exhibition, you'll see a lot of things that, as a reader, you would have actually seen in an issue, but you're mm-hmm. also going to see a lot of the sort of behind-the-scenes material that help kind of explain how the paper came into being, right? So how a photograph might get selected and cropped, or a media press kit that might go along um, when a band is, is coming to town. Or we even have um, some great notes back and forth between editors and then some of the cartoonists and the, uh, the actual letters like by like a figure like Linda Berry, are um, done and presented in the form of a cartoon themselves. They're not just like sort of like printed or typed out letters to the editor. And then you'll also see, you know, how a story came into being. Um, so a typed, you know, manuscript page of a significant story like House of Screams, where you see some of the editorial notes uh, that were made, as well as some of the changes done by the, the author, John Conroy. So you'll, you'll get a real kind of sense of what the past half century 
of print journalism looked like and how it kind of functioned and all the sort of work that had to go into creating a typical issue of the Chicago Reader. Excellent. Let's hear from a couple callers. First up, Sean in Palos Park. Hey, Sean. Welcome to Reset. Hey, thanks. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Awesome. Hey, you know, I grew up in Palos Park, and we had, you know, we couldn't get the reader here. We had the Illinois Entertainer here. So we'd always drive to the city to grab a copy, and you'd always go through Section 2 first and see what their bands were coming so you know what tickets you'd have to go to Ticketmaster and wait in Carson's. And mm-hmm. get. But then when you moved to the city, then you had the luxury of grabbing a reader, sitting in a bar alone. You didn't have to go with friends, and you could just sit at the bar, and you could start with Section 1, and you read through the whole thing. And just spend a whole afternoon by yourself, not even having to worry about being alone because you had the reader there with you. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Engineer Dave cosigns what you just said, Sean. He says, that's me. (laughs) Thanks for calling and sharing that story. Next up is Tanya in Edgewater. Hi, welcome to Reset. Hi, I just wanted to say happy anniversary. And thank you guys for creating the reader. Um, It is fresh. It is funky. Everything that you set out to establish, it was fun. Anything we needed to know uh, that was going on in the city, all you had to do is grab a reader and know about the latest concerts. And one of my favorite parts was if um, there was a part in the reader where if you saw someone you liked, but you just didn't have the nerves or something to meet them, you could leave a note in the reader and say, hey, I saw you. Yes. You know, I contact me later. Like you know? a missed connection. <laughs> yeah, yes. the connection part. Yes. yes. I loved it. Awesome. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Tanya. Tracy, how do you feel to hear all these memories coming in? Oh, Tanya, uh, we love seeing, reading those old misconnections. It is really, really unbelievable how kind of ahead of its time the reader was in other community media as well, how much people wanted to connect, right? We can do that so easy now through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but um, the reader really helped build community. One person, one relationship at a time, especially people that moved here or moved here from the suburbs that wanted to feel part of the city, the fabric of the city, the reader made them feel that. So I'm honored every day that I get a chance to do this. You know, I did Windy City Times for for decades, and I felt that in the gay community, which is like a small town in a big city, Mm -hmm. but now I feel part of this big city in a different way by being at the Reader, and hearing these stories motivates our team every day um, to know that we're part of that legacy. Well, let's go ahead and squeeze one more caller in. Here's Mike in North Aurora. Hey, Mike. What do you got? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I just wanted to echo a couple things that uh, our caller said. I moved here from downstate, so I was a... um, Prairie Sun Reader until I moved to Chicago, but uh, once I picked up the Reader, it was just such a great entry point into the city um, for you know what what was going on with arts and music and um, you know like I said, people talk about the comics. The uh, the straight dope was always the first thing I turned to, and um, then digging back into the back uh, classifieds for Bernie Pook's comic and all that. Mike, thanks so much for for calling. And, and sharing that with us, I want to make sure that we remind listeners of the details of the exhibition, Paul, the exhibition at yes. the Newberry Library. So it's free and open to everyone. And when is it open? It's open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 4 p.m. And it's open through Friday, January 21st of next year at the Hanson Gallery. Tracy, how else is the reader going to commemorate this 50th anniversary? 
Um, yeah, folks can go to chicagoreader.com slash five zero. We already have a lot of articles up uh, from the last issue and then the issue that's coming out this week, the really fun look back stories and details about the reader's past. Um, we've had some house parties. We had a fun house party last night. We have one coming up November 6th at Blanc Gallery in Bronzeville um, with uh, Don Turner Trice and Kay Uncom. Um, so we have we have a few events in person, but most of our stuff is is going to be virtual or online articles. We do hope to have a year long celebration uh, with COVID. We're planning our big gala for next October. Um, so just check out ChicagoReader.com for more details. That is Tracy Bain with the Chicago Reader and Paul Derica with the Newberry Library. Tracy and Paul, thank you so much. Well, that's it for today's Reset. For more of our interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It really helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Tomorrow.